This is the Bartholomew Town Podcast. Hi, everyone. I'm your host, Bill Bartholomew. On today's episode, I circle back with Rhode Island General Treasurer, Seth Magaziner. Hope you're having a spectacular day. Always a pleasure to spend some time together right here on the podcast. Remember, new episodes every Tuesday and Friday. You can subscribe on your favorite pod app or head over to ripodcast.com. And it was just last week that in my inbox, uh, I received a message from Treasurer Magaziner's office. I'll read the uh, the presser here for you. Treasurer Magaziner announcing that the state pension fund will end investments in assault weapons and private prisons. Treasurer Magaziner will join, will he join stakeholders to announce the first of its kind decision by the State Investment Commission to end investments in companies that operate private prisons and manufacturers of assault-style weapons for civilian use. To date, only three other state pension funds have taken similar action, with Rhode Island being the first to divest from both private prisons and assault weapon manufacturers at the same time. So, very interesting stuff there. Number one, the moral stance as Treasurer Magaziner described it, that the Treasurer's Office, the State Investment Committee, has taken in terms of the allocation of state dollars to make money for the pension fund, plain and simple. And secondarily, kind of further into the conversation, the relationship that government, government officials, and the public at large can have in shaping corporate behavior. So really interesting stuff here from the vault at the Rhode Island State House in just a matter of moments. Welcoming back for a third B-Town appearance, Rhode Island General Treasurer Seth Magaziner. Support for the Bartholomew Town podcast comes from Newport Vineyards. Here's Executive Chef Andy Teixeira. The vineyard itself plays to the local, not just the tourist. You know, again, being, you know, a local family business and a farm, we play to our locals. We are not just a high-end fine dining restaurant. We are not just a burger joint casual uh, brewery. We're both. We feel that everybody should be able to come and eat there. If you want to come have an occasion and have a tasting menu and, you know, really get, you know, a mind-blowing experience, we can do that for you and you'll feel perfectly comfortable. If you want to come in jeans and be casual and have a great burger and a beer, we have that too. And, you, you know, and everybody is just welcome and feels comfortable. And that makes us sustainable through the off-season. Discover more at NewportVineyards.com. All right, so we are here in the vault with uh, Treasurer Magaziner. Thanks again for, uh, I guess this is your third or fourth appearance yeah. on the show. Appreciate thank, it. Well, thank you for the opportunity. And you should tell people the vault means the vault uh, in yeah. the treasurer's all. We are there's, yes. there's an actual vault that we are exactly. inside, yeah. It's, um, and what are these books right here? I was just trying to make sense of that. So, uh, just so the listeners know, in the State House, in our office, in the Treasurer's office, there's an actual room that used to be a giant walk-in safe where they kept bonds and cash and, you know, other assets, hard assets, uh, all the way until the 1970s. And we do not do that anymore. We do not keep money in the State House <laughs> anymore. Um, but uh, the room is still here, and it's been turned into a conference room. So I think the books are mostly decorative, <laughs> but um, <laughs> but uh, but we do we use it for meetings. And, um, and in fact, my first year as treasurer, a couple uh, weeks after I took office, before I had even really moved into my my office office, you know, my office where I my desk is, there was a huge flood, and I was flooded out, and the vault was actually my office for the first 
probably six months that I was that I was treasurer. Wow, tight quarters. Yeah, but it was, yeah. you know, nice. it's, it's it's all good. And so yeah, you can you can probably hear there's a little bit of an echo in the room because behind the walls it's actually metal. It was you know an actual giant safe. But. One of the safest places to be, probably in the state house, right? <laughs> right. Here. Let's get into the um, the reason for this podcast is, and it's been a little bit overshadowed by other local news. Um, Moral investment, moral investment in the pension plan for the state and how that translates into, frankly, weapons and prisons, private prisons. Can you sort of summarize your position on why Rhode Island shouldn't have um, pension investments tied into these manufacturers and operators? Well, I think as a state government, we want to govern in a way that is in line with our values and with our ethics. And... With that in mind, I think the moral thing to do, the right thing to do, was to end our association with these companies that make money off of human suffering. And uh, in particular, uh, the for-profit prison industry and assault weapons manufacturers. You know, the for-profit prison industry, in my opinion, is a fundamentally broken business model. Um, there should not be a profit motive behind locking people up and, you know, don't get me wrong. Like there is a place for prisons in a society and, and sometimes people need to go into those prisons, uh, if they've done something that requires them to be removed from society and rehabilitated. But when you insert a profit motive into that, it can lead to perverse outcomes, right? You know, if there is a profit motive behind imprisoning people, then you're either going to try to imprison more people and push for policies that lead to more people getting locked up for minor offenses, or you're going to look to improve your profitability by cutting costs and creating conditions that are unhealthy, unsafe, both for the people who are incarcerated and for the people who work in those facilities. And so I don't think that the for-profit prison model is a model that can be fixed. Um, I think it's one that leads to fundamentally uh, perverse outcomes. And, um, uh, and that's why we made the decision to end our association with it. it. Assault weapons is a different issue, but the same theme, which is I don't think that we should be associating and investing our resources in companies that are making money off of human suffering. And over the last decade in particular, the number of mass shootings in this country has reached truly epidemic proportions. They're becoming more frequent, they're becoming more severe in terms of the number of people who are killed and injured. And while it is true that assault weapons are not used in every mass shooting, when they are used, those mass shootings are much deadlier. So on average, six times as many people are shot in a mass shooting when there's an assault weapon involved as opposed to when there isn't. That is why a number of our neighboring states, Massachusetts, Connecticut, New York, have banned assault weapons. It's why for 10 years in this country, we had a national assault weapons ban until the Republicans in Congress allowed that to sunset. And so to me, this was primarily a moral decision. It was a decision uh, to say that you know we as a as a pension system, we as an office don't want to associate with these industries anymore. And for those that would say, you know, the treasurer's job is to maximize return, 
mm-hmm. versus you know insert moral opinions. I mean, you could say the same thing about society at large. You could say, well, anyone who gets a C in a class should just be sent into the woods. We then will, you know, there's always well, different levels you can go with this. So, yeah. so my most important job as treasurer is to be a responsible manager of the state's finances and to get a strong return on our investment. And I'll say, first of all, in the time that I've been treasurer, we've done that. In the time that I've been treasurer, we've earned more than $2.5 billion of profits, of investment gains for the state pension system. Uh, And we've outperformed most other states around the country. So last year, the Rhode Island Pension Fund outperformed uh, about three quarters of the other pension, large pension funds around the country in terms of investment performance. We also outperformed most other states the year before that. So we're making money. We're doing it better than most of our peers. And the fact is that our holdings in these industries, for-profit prisons and assault weapons manufacturers, were a such a tiny percent of the whole. 0.003%. Yeah, less than 0.003%. Gotcha. And so, you know, and by the way, those companies have not, their stocks have not performed particularly well over the last several years. But either way, whether you think I made a good decision or a bad decision, whether you think this is the right thing to do or the wrong thing to do, it's irrefutable that it is not going to have any material impact on our investment performance. By selling these stocks that represent less than 0.003% of the total fund and reinvesting that money in the broader stock market, we are not going to have any material impact on performance at all. So we can do the right thing morally and maintain our strong performance for the pension system, which has, again, been very good over the last few years. Were these the only two broad areas that you'd consider any kind of divestment from or anything like that? Were there any other categories or something that we might see down the line? You know, these were the ones that we spent the most time looking at, particularly over the last few months. Um, I, I should say, and this is an important clarification for the listeners, I don't get to make these decisions unilaterally. We do have an investment committee uh, that has to vote on our investment policies. And these were two industries that the committee as a whole felt comfortable making this move on, both because of the moral issues with these industries, but also because it was clear that there would be no impact on our investment performance. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't anticipate that we will be making a similar move in other industries for this foreseeable future, but we are gonna be doing something and continue to be doing something very important instead. And that is shareholder engagement and shareholder activism. So when you are invested in a company, you are an owner of that company and there are certain ownership rights that come with that stock ownership, including the ability to vote up or down on executive compensation plans, the ability to vote up or down on board nominees to the company's boards, the ability to propose uh, shareholder um, uh, initiatives that all shareholders can vote on to advise the companies on um, policies. And so we have been very active over the last few years. Um, Randy Rice, who's sitting here with us, manages our shareholder engagement efforts. And we've been doing it at a number of companies on a number of different issues, and we've had really positive results. So for example, on climate change, uh, 
we want to make sure that the companies that we invest in are doing everything that they can to prepare for the risks of climate change and to contribute to progress toward a lower carbon economy. And so we focused a lot of our shareholder engagement efforts on climate. And we've had some big wins there. We just had a big win at a company called Williams, the Williams Company, uh, which essentially manages natural gas pipelines. Through our advocacy and our activism with other like-minded shareholders, we were able to get them to commit to uh, lowering their emissions, adopting new technologies that will limit their emissions, and measuring and being accountable and publishing their results so that we can make sure that they're making progress in that area. Um, we just had a big win at a company called Archer Daniels Midland, which is a big agricultural company, where, again, for the first time ever, they are going to look at targets to reduce their emissions and also adopt more renewable energy use because they own a lot of land that can be ripe for renewable energy. Um, we've been very active in pushing companies in the energy industry to stop funding climate denial and to reveal their political spending, their lobbying spending, their climate denial spending, um, because we don't think that that is a good use of their resources. They should be focused on building more sustainable business models, not funding climate deniers, right? right? And so we've had success in these areas and we're gonna to continue to be very aggressive in these shareholder engagement initiatives um, on a range of different issues. I just use climate as an example, but we also do the same thing on a range of other issues. Mm -hmm. uh, we've been very active on uh, student loan, the student loan crisis. We've been very active on trying to crack down on excessive executive compensation um, and on workers' rights issues. So um, just because we at this stage are only divesting from assault weapons and for-profit prisons does not mean that we are not going to be active in other areas. We're going to continue to be active, pushing for change, using different means um, on a range of other issues. This is the Bartholomew Town Podcast. Discover past episodes of the Bartholomew Town Podcast, like legendary Rhode Island reporter Jim Terracani, Senator Sheldon Whitehouse, Cranston Mayor Alan Fung, and Brown University political science chairwoman Dr. Wendy Schiller, all at ripodcast.com or wherever you like to get your pots. Right, so you're empowering the private sector essentially on a micro level, one by one. So if you are a shareholder in ExxonMobil and you happen to show up at the annual meeting, you can then vote as a micro owner to say, hey, we need to move in a particular direction with respect to climate change. So that's not a necessarily the government directly making that impact, but you yeah. certainly can draw the line. Right, and I think, I think especially with the federal government that right now under the current administration is doing nothing on so many of these issues, yeah. nothing good, it, it is up to shareholders like us who care to use whatever levers we have to try to drive positive change uh, at these big powerful companies. Um, last quick question, the governor proposed a 2030 I don't want to say deadline, but certainly goal for a renewable Rhode Island in terms of yeah. renewable energy. Um, does that impact how you are looking at anything from an investment standpoint, certainly maybe from even just a, an infrastructure bank standpoint, so on and so forth? Yeah, absolutely. So first of all, I um, 
was very encouraged to hear the governor lay out that goal. I think it's good, it's ambitious, but it's also achievable. And, you know, it's good to have ambitious goals, um, you know, particularly in this arena. Um, you know, Rhode Island, we are the ocean state. We are more directly impacted by climate change than almost any other part of the country. And there are two things that we should do about that. One is we have to invest in becoming more climate resilient. And as weather patterns change and sea levels rise, we need to do everything we can to prepare ourselves and protect ourselves. But then the second piece, which is what the governor was talking about, is we also have to lead by example and transition to a renewable energy economy as quickly as possible um, to show others that it can be done. And so on the first part, on resiliency, uh, the Infrastructure Bank, which uh, was a big focus of mine my first couple years in office, setting up new uh, funding and new programs at the Infrastructure Bank, that can be a great resource in climate resiliency efforts, whether it is you know, raising bridges and roads, whether it is um, uh, environmental improvements at public buildings to, you know, uh, help address drainage and runoff and all the other things that, you know, we're going to need to have to deal with as weather gets more severe. Um, and then it also means investing in energy efficiency because one of the ways that we get to that 100% renewable energy target is by reducing our overall demand for energy as well. So energy retrofits to buildings, more solar, more wind, um, all part of the picture. So, um, you know, working through the infrastructure bank, I'm very committed to doing everything that we can to help realize the governor's goal of 100% renewable electricity by 2030. Um, and then I'd like to see us go even further um, because electricity is a big part of our energy mix, but we're also gonna have to deal with transportation and deal with heating and everything else. So um, I, I was very encouraged to see this step from the governor and, you know, in our office, uh, in the treasurer's office at the Infrastructure Bank, I know we are committed to being part of the solution for how we get it done. Blue tech, green tech, I mean, it seems like the, this decade, 2020 through 2030, you could read the Rhode Island history book in 100 years and see that's where industrially we pivoted, yeah. where thought leaders were really coming here to make things happen. I, I, think, it's, I think it's absolutely doable. You know, we, we, if we did nothing, which is not what I'm advocating, but if we right. did nothing, the offshore wind that has already been approved, the offshore yep. wind build out, right? Orsted building another 50 turbines in addition to the five that are already out there. Yep. That alone would get us, as I understand it, to between a quarter and a third of our total electricity renewable, mm -hmm. right? So even if we did nothing else, we would go from less than 5% renewable to 25 or 30, you know, 25 to 30% just from that in the span of just six or seven years. I mean, that's amazing speed. Like that's amazing change in like a relatively short amount of time. And so getting the rest of the way there and getting to a hundred percent in the next 10 years, it's ambitious, but it's absolutely doable. Right. Just a little patience, long-term thinking in terms of the investment strategies, I guess. And yeah. it could be there. So yeah. And focus, just being focused on it. Treasury Magaziner from The Vault. Thanks so much, <laughs> and Randy as well. Thank you, Bill. Appreciate Pleasure. it. As always, thanks for joining in on the Bartholomew Town Podcast. Reach out anytime. My email is bill at ripodcast.com. Until next time, we'll talk soon. This is 
The Bartholomew Town Podcast.